Hello friends, welcome to the Hillside Church Podcast. My name is Brad and I serve Hillside Church as the lead pastor. We're so glad to be able to share God's word with you in this way. God has so much in store for you and for your life. And one of the ways God works in our lives is through the study of his word, like the message you're about to hear. Our prayer for you is that as you share in this message, if it's me preaching or if it's someone else, is that God's word would minister to your heart and life in a most powerful way. Thanks again for being part of our church family. God bless you. There are three things that I would like you to know about me before I give you my message this morning. Uh, The first is that I am an introspective type of person. I like to think things over, mull them around in my head, uh, look at things from different angles, and that usually takes place over a period of time. I do not like to give quick answers. And so my message this morning is actually something that I have been thinking about for a few years. And um, it's me um, putting into words all those ideas that I've had in my head for the last few years. The second thing I want you to know about is that I am passionate about prayer. I consider prayer a privilege. I consider it a responsibility. We are all children of the God of the universe the one who spoke the world into existence, the Lord God Almighty, um, the one of whom there is none greater, and we have his ear. How amazing is that? He calls us to cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us. So prayer for me is a conversation that I have with God throughout the day where I just pour out absolutely everything that's on my mind to him and just wait and listen to see how he's going to uh, answer me. Finally, the third thing I'd like you to know about me is what my spiritual routine looks like. I try to read through the entire book of Psalms every month, all 150 Psalms. And that might sound like a really big thing, but it's actually very doable. I read about five psalms a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, just depending on the length of the individual psalms. And I get them emailed to me each morning so I don't have to keep track of what I'm supposed to be reading in a given day. Um, Now, when you... um, Oh, no, that's not what I was going to say. So reading through the psalms is actually what has led to the topic that I'd like to speak about today. And that is, how do we pray for our enemies? Now, when you read through a book over and over again, you will notice things that you would not notice when you just read through it once. Things like repeated words, repeated phrases. Um, You'll also notice verses that you might not have noticed the first time around. And sometimes the verses are really nice and inspiring. And like when you think of the Psalms, you probably immediately think of Psalm 23, which says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's really warm and fuzzy and inspirational. And it sounds good. But there's also verses in the Psalms that I've discovered that are not at all warm and fuzzy. Um, Verses that um, actually make me stop and question What are these verses doing in the Bible? Some of these verses don't even sound very Christian-like at all. And so, being an introspective type of person, these verses got me thinking. Now, 
in 1 Timothy um, 3.16, we read that all scripture is inspired by God and is uh, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I believe this with all my heart. So, knowing that this is true, um, what do we do with the hard verses in the Psalms, um, knowing that they're inspired by God? Let me give you an example. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 3, um, which I'm going to read for you a couple of times. The first time, though, that I read it, I'm going to leave out one of the verses, verse 7. So Psalm 3 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O God. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So everything sounds good, right? The psalmist, King David, has a problem. His foes, or his enemies, are all around him. They are out to get him, and they think that God is not going to do a thing to help him. But David knows God, and he has confidence in him. And because of this, he sleeps soundly. He knows that he can cry out to God, and God will hear him. It sounds good, right? Sounds hopeful encouraging. Sounds like the kind of thing that we want to teach our children, or maybe put on a magnet that we stick to our refrigerators. But there was a verse that I left out. So I'm going to read through this psalm again. This time I'm going to include verse 7. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O God. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So, there it is. In the inspired word of God, strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. Think about that for a moment. Do you see what I mean when I say that it's not warm and fuzzy? But it's in the Bible, written by David, a man after God's own heart. So, is this how we should pray? Should we ask God to strike all of our enemies on the jaw and break their teeth? Aren't we supposed to turn the other cheek? And if this isn't how we're supposed to pray, what do we do with this verse? Maybe quietly sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there? Now, you might think that this is a one-time thing, one little blemish in the otherwise inspirational book of Psalms, but it's not. Have a look at Psalm 10. 
a psalm where the writer feels that God is standing far off um, and is hiding himself in times of trouble. Starting at verse 12. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. So, in Psalm 3, God is asked to strike all our enemies on the jaw and break their teeth. And in Psalm 10, he is asked to break their arms. So, these verses, you could say, are puzzling, confusing, and they don't sound really loving at all. And that's what we're supposed to be, right? Loving. The Bible says that God is love. And punching our enemies on the jaw and breaking their teeth sounds so completely unloving. So how do we reconcile these two opposing thoughts? Well, this was the question that was churning around within me. How do we pray for our enemies? Well, I am human. I am not perfect. I can be selfish and immature and not really nice at times. And there is a part of me that thinks that these verses sound like a really good idea. There are people who have done me wrong, and in my opinion, a godly punch in the jaw combined with some broken teeth and maybe a broken arm sound like a good idea. Give these people what they deserve. Teach them a lesson. And I know that this is a dangerous thing to say. We live in a society that at times likes to take statements completely out of context and twists them into meaning something the speaker never intended. And if I were a prominent Christian figure, I could see what the media might say. Maria Keibel, who claims to be a Christian, advocates physical violence against her enemies. And once again, Christianity would be misrepresented. Opponents of the faith would say, this shows how unloving those Christians really are. Well, they, the unbelievers, are really the kind and caring ones. Well, as I was thinking about this, and as I said, this was a process that took place over a period of time, I asked some believers that I really respect how they thought we should pray about our enemies. And one person in particular said that he doesn't really have any enemies. And I suppose on one level this is true. He's a fairly nice, easygoing guy, um, and I think he gets along with everyone, and I assume that everyone gets along with him. But on another level, it's not true. Just by being a believer in Jesus Christ means that we have enemies, even if we do not know them personally. There are those who mock us silently and those who are openly opposed to us. Consider, for example, how Christians are portrayed in the media or on television. Some are shown to be good and kind people, but others are not. Have you ever seen the TV show The Office? Angela Martin, one of the characters of the show, claims to be a Christian, but here is how she was described online. Angela Martin, 
was perhaps the most morally corrupt character in the office. Ironically, a significant feature to Angela's character was her devotion to religion. She was judgmental toward everyone around her while simultaneously being underhanded and immoral. She committed adultery and belittled her co-workers. She was not a loving person, and I suggest to you that the writers who created Angela are enemies of Christianity. Consider also the media. How are Christians covered in the news? Do we always get favorable coverage? Do we receive as much positive coverage as other religions do? Do the good things about the church receive as much coverage as negative things do? Are there any members of the media who are enemies of Christians? Can you think of any politicians who have proposed legislation that goes against Christian values? Are these people our enemies? We all have enemies. Some of us know our enemies by name, while for others our enemies are not people we have daily contact with, but we all have enemies. So how do we, as believers in Jesus Christ, pray for our enemies? Or let me take a step back and ask, should we pray for our enemies? Well, the answer to that is yes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So yes, we need to be praying for our enemies. Jesus commands it. And he wouldn't command it if it wasn't in our best interest to do it. He wouldn't command it if it wasn't going to make a difference or do any good. If it was, so here we are, back to my original question. How do we pray for our enemies? How do we pray for those big fat jerks who are difficult and make our lives miserable, who are mean and evil and not really nice people? They persecute us and step on our toes and are hard to get along with. So here are my thoughts. The first step is humility. None of us are perfect. In fact, to put it bluntly, we are dirty, rotten sinners who at times are big, fat jerks who are hard to get along with. Or let me take that back. Maybe you aren't, but I know that I am. What I do know is that we are all sinners who have been saved by the grace and mercy of a loving God. Have a look at Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 3, which reads, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. God saved us according to his mercy. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, it says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So the first step in praying for enemies is acknowledgement. 
we need to acknowledge who we are before God. Acknowledge how great our own need for forgiveness and mercy was. And acknowledge that our enemies need a savior just as much as we did. Now, as I said, the question of how we pray for our enemies is something that I've been mulling over for a period of time, like a few years. The answer to this question didn't just pop into my head one day. It was a process. It was kind of like doing a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces were put together over time. And one piece of that puzzle occurred to me a few years ago when I was reading through the Gospel of Luke. There's this part near the beginning of Luke where Jesus is starting his public ministry and he comes to Nazareth and goes into the synagogue. This is found in Luke chapter 4. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he enrolled it to the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Of the Lord. Now, I have gone to church all my life, and so I was quite familiar with this passage. Um, but one day, I had this revelation as I was reading it. What if, when Jesus said that he came to bring recovery of sight to the blind, what if he wasn't just talking about people who are physically blind, but what if he was including those who are spiritually blind as well? People who are blind to the existence of God, blind to his love and goodness. What if our enemies are spiritually blind, just as we once were? Now, I put this verse together with a verse found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 3, which reads, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. I'd like to read that for you again because it's really important. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So the God of this world, which is Satan, the devil, the enemy of our soul, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Think about that. The unbelieving are blind. But Jesus Christ has come to bring recovery of sight to the blind. Not just physical sight, but spiritual sight too. So this then is the next step in praying for our enemies. Ask Jesus to give sight to those who are spiritually blind. Ask Jesus to give sight to our enemies. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived or seen, being understood by what has been made. And in Psalm 19 we read, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
Now, I don't know what these passages are like for you, but for me, these passages are both very visual, saying that the evidence of God can be seen in all of creation. And as we saw in the letter to the Corinthians, the unbelieving have been blinded, so they don't see the evidence of God all around us. They don't see his glory. And without the recognition of God, the spiritually blind become our enemies. And so we need to pray that Jesus Christ would give recovery of sight to our enemies, that the, our enemies would see the evidence of God that exists all around us, that they would see it in the beauty of creation, that they would see the evidence of God in the strength of a thunderstorm, that they would see it as they think about how beautifully detailed and amazing the night sky is, that they would see God's goodness and as a result, they would recognize their own need for him. That they would see God and desire to know him for themselves. So this then is the second part to praying for our enemies. Praying for sight. Now, the third insight I had occurred a couple of years ago. I was reading through the two letters that Paul had written to Timothy. And I came across this verse that I was never aware of before. And don't you just love that when you're reading scripture and a verse that you've never seen before just jumps out at you? Something that you've never noticed, even though you've read that passage before? And it really cemented for me the question of how we should pray for our enemies. So have a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 25. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So consider this. Our enemies are really people who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. So maybe they're not actually our enemies. Maybe the real enemy is Satan himself, and he is using people. He has taken them captive, and we think that they're our enemies, but they're not the real enemy. The real enemy is, in fact, much greater. So, for example, the passionate pro-abortion activist who says that you are anti-woman is really a lost soul who has been taken captive by the devil to do his will. The politician or the judge who is trying to think of ways to have the Bible declared as hate speech is in fact a soul who has been taken captive by the devil to do his will. The dictators in countries where being a Christian is a crime punishable by death and where women are oppressed and treated like possessions are really men who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And the grouchy neighbor or co-worker who is determined to make your life miserable has been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And each of these individuals needs our prayers. And our prayers are powerful. We pray to the one who spoke the world into existence. Think about that. The one who breathed life into dust and created a man. 
the one who parted, who parted the sea so that his people could cross on dry land. The Israelites didn't cross over a muddy bottom of the Red Sea. They passed on dry ground. Amazing. Scripture tells us that there is nothing impossible for God. And I don't know who specifically you consider to be your enemies, but God does. So pray for them. Pray for them with humility. Pray for that God would restore their sight. Pray that God would set them free from the trap of the devil. So let's go back to Psalm 3, where the psalmist is asking God to strike all his enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked. And then in Psalm 10, where, God asks, where the author asks God to break the arm of the wicked. So here are my thoughts. Neither a strike on the jaw or broken teeth are fatal wounds, but they do disable a person. If your teeth are broken, you can't talk legibly. And if your arm is broken, it's useless. Um, but aren't we supposed to turn the other cheek? Well, yes, we are. Scripture commands it. But in both of these Psalms, Psalm 3 and Psalm 10, it's not the psalmist who says that he's going to do these things. Rather, the psalmist takes his concerns to God, who is a righteous judge, a fair judge, a good judge, and he casts his cares upon God. In Psalm 83, writing about his enemies, the psalmist asks God to cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. The psalmist wants God to do whatever it takes so that his enemies will seek the name of the Lord. And this should be our goal, that our enemies will seek God. So we need to pray for our enemies with compassion, knowing that they are blind, knowing that they are being held captive by the devil. We need to pray that God will do whatever it takes to bring our enemies to that saving knowledge of him, that they might, oh, and that might include godly discipline in their lives. But sometimes godly discipline is what it takes to bring each of us to that point where we recognize our need for God. So, finally, I quoted the Sermon on the Mount earlier, which says, love your enemies. If you feel that this is impossible for you, ask God to do the impossible in your own heart and supernaturally empower you to love your enemies just as he does. I'd like to pray for each of us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the great mercy that you have shown us. Lord, I acknowledge before you and before my brothers and sisters that it was my sins that nailed you to the cross, and yet you showed me great compassion. And Lord, today I just pray for those that I consider my enemies, asking that you would show them the great, same great compassion and mercy and love that you showed me. Lord, I ask that you would give sight to the blind, that they would see that you are real, that they would know that you exist, that they would see the evidence of you that you have woven into creation, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would not allow the enemy to have victory in the lives of our enemies, that you would set them free from his snares, set them free from his traps. And I pray that... Um, 
the day would come, Lord, where one day we would be able to each embrace our enemies as our brothers and sisters. In your great and awesome name, Lord, I pray. Amen. I speak the name of Jesus over you. Thanks again for being a part of this message from Hillside Church. We pray that God was able to speak to you through what was shared. We're so grateful to be able to share God's word with our church community and family, and that includes you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hillside Airdrie. You can contact us through email at info at hillsideairdrie.ca. Or you can go to hillsideairdrie.ca and click on contact us from the main menu. Or you can find our pastoral team contact by clicking on our pastors from the Our Church drop-down menu. Our vision for everyone that shares in Hillside Church is that they would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power in their lives. And we pray this message ministered to you. At Hillside Church, we're a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. As family we go. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name.